Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. Good morning. Hey, I'm getting used to a new microphone, so I might move away from it. So don't blame me if my voice goes out sometimes. Now, actually, we're getting... They are really taking care of us in the studio here. We got a new phone system in just a few weeks ago, and now we got new microphones, and we already have really nice studios. So this is great. We must be making. We must be making some money, Kyle. So anyway, we got a full show for you today. We're gonna talk uh, talk some fishing, and you know, talking fishing right now, it's kind of a a shoulder season. And there, But there's still a lot of opportunities to get out there and fish. We'll talk about those. And there's also a great time to start getting ready for when you get, if maybe if you're somebody who wants to wait till spring, you can be getting ready. We're going to talk about getting your boat ready, getting your gear ready, a lot of those things today. We're going to talk some turkey hunting. We're going to talk goose season, what's happened as that's winding down and the opportunities there. And uh, we're just going to cover a myriad of topics today. And right now we're going to go right to the phones. And joining us, he's an old friend of the show, and you've seen him many, many times on my television shows, uh, although he had to get me up at 4 o'clock in the morning all the time to film with him. <laughs> Good friend of ours, Troy Coburn. Good morning, Troy. Good morning, Terry. How are you? I'm doing great. And, you know, I'll never forget the time we had filmed <laughs> two or three shows already, and we had got up early, but we had caught some of the fish later on. And you called sure. me and said, we got this incredible bite going on, but you got to be there at daybreak. And I said, do you want to tell Karen we're getting up at four o'clock or do you want me to tell her? And you said, well, let's make it eight. <laughs> I might be slow, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> oh, we had, we've had some good times on the water together, my friend. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, uh, yeah. one of the shows you and I did at Cherry Creek Reservoir, when we trolled, uh, we found a pod of walleyes. And then yeah. we then we marked the GPS point. We didn't put out a um, a marker, or we didn't have spot lock on trolling motors then. Yet we used right. that GPS to keep us on that. And we sat on that spot and caught walleye after walleye. That is one of the most viewed shows I have on YouTube. It just oh, pe- that's awesome. People just love that. Well, you know, it's close by. Has a good looking young guy yeah. in it like you, so they don't have to just look <laughs> at me. So lots of reasons. <laughs> You know, Troy, you're you're really an accomplished angler, and you've really been in all aspects of fishing. Um, you were just an avid uh, bass tournament fisherman, and one of the best in this state for quite some time. And you and I did a lot together. And but as your life kind of progressed, and you did some different things, you've you've branched out, and you've always liked all types yeah. of fishing. But you've really gotten heavily into more trout and some flies and things, haven't you? Yeah, you know, uh, I cut my teeth on fishing, fishing for trout. Uh, one of my earliest memories of, of fishing was fishing in the Pilchuck River uh, north of Seattle with my grandmother and my uncle uh, fishing for steelhead. And that's, I, I got introduced into fishing in trout and steelhead and fishing in the, in the, in Puget Sound for salmon. And then I was an army brat, so I, I I moved all over the country when I was young. And from from Washington State, we moved out to Missouri, and then I just totally immersed myself in in bass fishing. And 
And then I went from Missouri. I came back out uh, west to Colorado right after high school and continued bass fishing for quite a while, but slowly started gaining more of an appreciation for trout and much more of an appreciation to escape to the mountains to kind of get away from the hustle and bustle of the city. And so the majority of the fishing that you do when you head west from Denver is not bass fishing, it's it's trout fishing. So it's it's more about the serenity and the and and just being out in the wilderness than it is the species that I choose to chase. Well, I think uh, something else that really hit home when I was thinking about having you on today and that's the fact that my background, as you know, was bass fishing and walleye fishing. And I took up fly fishing later in life and still do a lot of it and do a lot of trout conventional fishing, too. And I right. think you take a different approach um, to understanding fish behavior and triggering strikes coming from the conventional world than maybe you do as a traditional fly fisherman. And it really yeah. can expand your horizons. And you've kind of taken that and developed some flies and jigs just for those purposes, haven't you? Yeah. So coming from going from trout to bass and then back to trout, just basically broadened my horizons as far as the way that I think about fishing. And, uh, and then you go and you mix some walleye in with, with some of that too. And, and, you know, walleye and bass fishing is, more similar than trout and bass fishing, but you start to understand characteristics that predators have. And a 25-inch brown trout and a six-pound largemouth and an eight-pound walleye all are top-of-the-line uh, top predators. And so they get that way by all having a common thread there there's there's a, a just a certain aggressiveness in a fish no matter if it's a trout or if it's a bass or if it's a walleye that that helps them get that big and so you start realizing this what this common thread is and dabbling in all of it um i don't think the same way that a trout fisherman thinks or a bass fisherman thinks for that matter. So I'm able to kind of cross-reference all of my experiences and I put together uh, kind of a pattern that I have done extremely well with um, uh, applying it to trout fishing and learning a lot of those from bass and walleye. So it's it's been very successful and then implementing it into my fly fishing uh, I, I'll go up into Cheeseman Canyon and I've created some flies. One in particular, I, I call it the one inch death punch and it's a jig style fly. And, um, I can literally go into Cheeseman Canyon, uh, during the summertime and catch 50 fish. And that's almost unheard of up there, but I'm the only one in there bass fishing for trout with my fly rod. So it's been pretty successful. Well, I think what what you run into, and I understand completely what you're going, th you know, what you're experiencing, and we'll tell people where they can see pictures of these flies and, and where they can purchase them and what they're like here in a little bit. But, uh, you know, I remember fishing with some very accomplished fly fishermen, 
And we were in a situation, and I'm going to relate this to streamers, where your flies are kind of a cross between a jig or a streamer and maybe a, uh, some other hair or feather-based flies. And uh, the, uh, the common inclination when times were tough, like the middle of winter when it's technical, was to go little tiny flies, get the most incredible dead drift you can, try to put it in front of them, even though they have time to look it over in that drift, and hope that you can fool them and that they're hungry enough where they'll feed. I see walleye right. fishermen in tournaments. They'd take a leech and a slip sinker and try to put it right in front of those fish and get them to feed. Well, that's okay if those fish can be triggered to feed. But a lot of times, fish aren't feeding, so you have to trigger another instinct, don't you? Right, right, right. So the key word that you just used is trigger. So here's my philosophy on, on that. There's, there's two ways to catch a fish. You can spoon feed them and... If you're, if you're going to feed them what they're currently eating, you're kind of giving a lot of that control to the fish. Um, so you have to have the perfect drift. You have to have the perfect line. You have to have the right size tippet. You have to have the right size fly. All these things have to be perfect, and then you have to put it within that small strike zone in front of that fish. And that's, that's feeding the fish. Um, you're giving the fish the control. I prefer to have the control. So I rely, instead of feeding the fish, I rely on, on an instinctual, um, uh, it's, it's bred into every predator on the face of the earth. It's, it's an instinctual reaction strike style of fishing. So um, that gives me the control. And so I am causing that fish to act to, or to react to my presentation instinctually i'm presenting something sometimes big sometimes flashy sometimes noisy sometimes fast moving and that fish has a very short window of time to either react to it or to ignore it so when i used to do presentations um uh, up on the tank at the ise show one of my favorite angles to use to demonstrate um what i'm talking about it's if, if you have your back to me and I have a hot potato and I throw it at you and I call your name as it's coming at you and you turn around and you see this thing coming at you, your first instinct is to catch it. And then you realize it's hot and then you drop it, but you still caught it. And that's kind of the same principle where you're, you're just presenting it quickly. It's in the fish's face. He's got to decide now, am I going to eat it? Am I not going to eat it? Most of the time, a, an aggressive, dominant, predatory fish will at least take a swing at it. And then if you get the hook set quickly enough, you got him. No, you're absolutely right. It's a different reaction. And, and this isn't just in trout fishing. Uh, as a, both a fly fisherman and a conventional fisherman, there's a lot of times I just was corresponding with a, a gentleman who's heading up to Glendale to go ice fishing for walleyes. I did a television show oh, over a decade ago up there. And we went up there, and typical walleye fishermen like to use bait and things. And we used jigging spoons and caught 100 walleyes out there with never sure. a piece of bait on it. That jigging sure. spoon, even though it was up and down, it wasn't horizontal, was a reaction strike. And, totally. And that's why we got those fish to go. And that's why spoons are so effective for all types of fish. Or you get in this cold water in spring, and you can still run a jerk bait by them or a crankbait in the summer. You just... And the other thing with this type of presentation, it allows you to cover water when you don't know exactly where the fish are located. 
And that is the key to the success of fishing this way is covering, covering, covering water as quickly as possible. So you have, you know, not every fish is going, you're not going to be able to elicit a reaction strike out of every fish. So the key is, is if you have a certain amount of fish, say 100 fish in a stretch of water, maybe 10% of them will react to that reaction strike type of fishing. And so the idea is you're only presenting that lure once or maybe twice to that aggressive fish, and then you're moving on. You know, you you talk about the guys that are fly fishing that are, you know, nymphing, and, and, and they will sit and pound uh, a particular fish for 15, 20, 25 minutes, hoping to get that right drift and stuff like that. On a reaction strike, you don't, there's very little that you have to do perfectly other than get that lure in a position to where the fish will see it. And if he is willing to play, he will chase it down. I've watched fish come from 15, 20 feet away to crush uh, my one inch death punch or, or other jigs that I tie. Um, but the key again is to cover water because there's only about 10% of fish in that particular area that will play along you give them a shot at it, you maybe give them a second shot at it, and then you move on. You know, there's two things that fly fishermen are reluctant, and I'm, and this is kind of leads into both of them. One of them, we've trained them so hard about getting a perfect dead drift and matching the hatch that sometimes it's difficult for them to throw a streamer-like bait or a bait where you're moving it like yours that I guess they're truly not streamers. I'll let you de- describe them in a minute here. Um, so that that kind of they kind of shy away because they're not sure how to do it. They've they, the river has always given life to their presentation before. Now they have to give it some life. The other place that they hesitate is Stillwater Lakes because they don't understand how to locate the fish or make a presentation. And I would think this type of presentation where you cover water would be so effective in Stillwater also. Oh, absolutely. So let's let's go back to my bass fishing history. Um, Covering water quickly. So basically on still water, you're going to look at a map. You're going to look for things like weed edges, weed lines, main lake points, secondary points, channels, inlets, whatever. And the area of the lake where you find most of those different options in one very small area gives you an opportunity, if you're speed fishing, to roll through, cover as much water, And then when you catch a fish, you take note, was he on the weed line? Was he on a main lake point? Was he near a channel or a drop-off? Whatever. You take note of that, and then you look at the lake map, or or you look at a satellite image or whatever, or just go off of your knowledge of the body of water that you're on. And then you try to pinpoint other areas of the lake that that uh, have those same features where you just caught that fish. And then you go around the lake and you duplicate that pattern. So if you're, um, if you're fishing a very slow presentation, it doesn't allow you to nail down that pattern as quickly as it does as if you're, fish, if you're fishing an actual reaction strike type presentation. Now, we're, we're out of time, but I'm going to take a couple extra minutes. We'll make it up because I have some really good segments coming up after this, but we'll get them all in. I want you to describe the flies and where people could find them. And then real quick, if you were going fishing, it was going to be warm till about Thursday, then we see a drop-off. If you were going between now and then, where might you go try this technique? Okay, well, let's start with that. Um, the, uh, 
they just bumped the flows up at the dream stream. And so they bumped it from around, around 50 CFS up to 80. So that's, that's going to be a really good area. Um, the flows in Cheeseman Canyon are pretty low. Uh, so it's, it's going to be tough, but if I was going to go somewhere today, that's, I would go to the dream stream. Um, as far as the flies go that I tie the jigs, um, you can get on Facebook and you can go to Colorado jig mafia. And it's just a, it's just a discussion page. Uh, you don't need to be a member, uh, to view the page, but it, if you, uh, request to be a member, you will get notification of when these flyers are showing up. Um, and I've got some pretty good videos on there talking about the flies and the jigs and you can pick them up at discount fishing tackle in Denver. You can pick up the jigs there. And, uh, also the blue quill angler up in evergreen, uh, carries the, uh, the jig flies, the one inch death punch. And so those can be thrown on light spinning tackle or they can be thrown on a fly rod. So they're, like I said before, they're, um, you know, it's a, it's I'm cross-referencing everything and and trying to do do stuff that you can throw on both fly rods and spinning rods. Say it again, real quick, because we got to go. It is Colorado Jig Mafia on Facebook. All right, my friend. We will talk to you again soon, and we have to get on the water again soon. Absolutely. Give me a call. Thanks. I'm ready to go. Thanks, Troy. Troy Colburn. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. We're going to go right back to the phones and joining us from one of my actually favorite reservoirs in this part of the country, which is Navajo and Navajo State Park, Rob Carter. Good morning, Rob. Hello, Terry. How are you today? I'm doing well. And, you know, you guys have a great body of water down there. Um, you know, there's probably people who aren't familiar with the area, why don't you tell them where Navajo Reservoir is located or Navajo State Park and describe it a little bit. Yes, sir. We are about uh, 35 miles southwest of Pagosa Springs and about the same distance uh, southeast of Durango, Colorado. We're right next to the uh, Colorado-New Mexico border. And it's uh, from Denver area here, you know, we're probably a six and a half, maybe seven hour drive, depending on the weather. So it's it's an easy, doable weekend drive. Well, and there's so much to do when you get there. Now, it's winter activities now, and we'll talk about that. And But then in the summer, too, year-round, it's a destination. And not only for coming to Navajo Reservoir and the things you can do there, but the whole area has incredible activities. Tell us a little bit about if I was to come down, do you have camping, cabins? What do you have available? Yes, sir. You know, this we're, we're a little slow right now because of the, the boating and the winter, but the winter activities at Navajo are absolutely fantastic. We do have camping. Our Rosa campground is open right now, and with the new camp uh, RVs that people have, you know, winter camping is very doable. We also have three cabins that we have, one that can be reserved online, and the cabins are very comfortable. They're log cabins. People would need to bring their own bedding, but they have full kitchens. There's two bedrooms, one with a queen-size bed, and then some uh, bunk beds. So those are very, very comfortable for people to stay in as well. Now, if you come down there, are you guys part of the new reservation system where all the reservations are made online, and even if you're coming the same day, you can make it? 
Yes, sir, we are. We are part of the, the new reservation system. Uh, there is availability. People should check. You know, if they book online, as I say, we have one cabin that we are booking online. But if people walk in, we have two that could be available for walk-ins as well. Okay, so you've got things. To, uh, you come down there. It's wintertime. I want to talk about, as we get towards spring and fishing and lake conditions here in a minute, but say you're coming down now. And what can I do there? I mean, is there snowmobile trails? Is there cross-country skiing? What is there to do in the area around the park? It is, to me, one of the greatest times of year at the park because of the the wildlife that is there. I mean, we have hundreds of deer. Uh, Last weekend, I saw three bull elk, big bull elk on the park, a lot of eagles. We have bald eagles, golden eagles, uh, a lot of waterfowl. So the wildlife viewing is absolutely incredible. We've got a good snowpack this year, so if people come down and they like to do some cross-country skiing or snowshoeing, there's there's plenty of availability, plenty of trails to go out on over to the watchable wildlife area or even following down along the lake since the water's low. So it's, uh, it's an absolutely serene, beautiful time of year at Navajo Park. And, you know, even if you want to go to um, Pagosa Springs or Durango and stay for other activities, you're such a short drive from those to the park if you want to make a date, couple day trips to the park. So whether you stay in the park and do the other things or do other things and make day trips to the park, well worth the drive. But I fell in love with Navajo because of the fishing. It's, to me, one of the premier fisheries in this part of the state or the Rocky Mountains. Now, we know we came off some low snowpacks the last couple of years. Tell me what the water conditions are like and boat at what boat access will be like as we get into spring. Yes, sir. Right now, the water level of the lake is at, at 6015, which is a low water level for us. Uh, however, we are getting a good snowpack, so we really hope to see that level come up this spring. Uh, it has a good positive to it, though, with the low water level. We have been able to resurface approximately 180 feet of our lower boat ramp so that's going to be all new they just finished the last pour on i believe it was thursday this last week we will open the boat ramp for boat launching and ans inspections on march 1st and that's perfect timing because that's about the time that you know you start looking at the the crappie fishing picking up well and people i don't know if people know the different species that are in there let's go through them a little bit you mentioned the crappies there is some tremendous crappie fishing down there isn't there Yes, sir. There's very large crappie. And and they're abundant. And like you said, they're so active in the spring. They're in that pre-spawn mode. They're moving shallow. And the water typically is rising then. So with this low water, I'm sure you've had some brush grow up and things. And as that water rises, those crappies are going to move right into that shoreline cover, especially with that water coming up with better snow this year. So that will... Uh, that's just a, you know, it looks like it could be a really great crappie season. What are some of the other species people come down there for? Well, of course, when the crappies start moving into the sh- shallow water, the, the northern pike will follow them as well, too. Uh, very, very good pike fishing. I mean, it's a three-foot-plus pike are, are not uncommon at, at uh, uh, Navajo. We also have smallmouth bass. We have largemouth bass. We have trout fishing with the brown trout. We have rainbow trout, kokanee salmon. Uh, we have bluegill. Catfish fishing is, is excellent as well. I don't know if I covered all the species, but there are so many different varieties of, of fish in Navajo. Now, I can attest to it. In fact, I did a 
television show down there many years ago. It was in the spring, and we we caught uh, two largemouth bass that were probably pushing four-plus pounds. I mean, two smallmouth pushing four-plus pounds. Caught a huge catfish, lost count of the number of pike we caught, and we caught just, it was just tremendous. Now, the lake is down, but people don't need to, it's still a big body of water, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, it's 35 miles from one end to the other end of the dam of New Mexico and plenty of water in between. Even though it's a little low, you know, getting on our boat ramp, once you get out on the water, there's tons of water, tons of back bays that you can get into. In fact, it's often referred to as the Little Lake Powell because of all of the bays and so forth that you can get into. Even on a busy weekend, 4th of July weekend, you can get away from the crowds, get in your own little bay and, and just have a have a great time. No, you're right. It's a tremendous, tremendous place to go. I've spent my time there uh, many times, and I just love the lake. And you just have such a variety of fishing. We should mention that a good part of the reservoir is in New Mexico. Yes, sir, it is. Ninety percent of the lake is in New Mexico. And with that in mind, if people are fishing, you know, they will need, if they're fishing Colorado, a Colorado fishing license. If they're fishing New Mexico, New Mexico fishing license. And if I'm not mistaken, you can get both right at your facility, right? Yes, sir, absolutely. So how do they find, get a hold of you, find out what's going on, check conditions? Is there a website, phone number? Yes, both. Uh, The visitor center's phone number is 970-883-2208 for boat reservations in the summer because we do rent boats. That's right. I'm glad you brought that up. Wanted to make reservations. The marina phone number is 970-883-2608. And we're taking reservations now for the summer, so if people are planning a trip to book their cabin or campsite and wanted to book a boat, it's a good time to to do it and make sure they get the the dates that they like. Uh, The website would be cpw.state.co.us. Once you go to there, you can say uh, places to go, and you can click on your park there, click on Navajo or any of the other uh, 42 state parks as well. All right, Rob, we got to go, but it's a great place. People need to start making reservations and get down there and enjoy the trails right now in the wildlife. Thank you so much for joining us. You bet. You have a great weekend, Terry. You bet. That's Rob Rob Carter from uh, uh, Navajo Park. And we're going to take a time out here. We come back. We're going to spend plenty of time because we're going to talk turkey hunting right here on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan, and we are going to go right to the phones because uh, joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is Ryan Herlihy. Did I get that right, Ryan? Yes, Terry, you did. And I'm so glad you are patiently waiting because I want to spend some time on this subject, and we're going to talk turkey hunting. And, you know, Ryan, when I started this show, we're going on 22 years ago now, we... um. Parks and Wildlife was part of it, and we would do uh, almost a full one hour every year on turkey hunting, and I think we had about 12 guys that listened, and most of them hunted in other states. They would try Colorado. My, how things have changed, haven't they? Yes, they have. We have just got such great turkey. We have great populations because of programs to you know bring turkeys here. We have great turkey populations in Colorado, and the hunting itself has taken it off. And, you know, I don't know if there's a hunter more passionate about what he does than turkey hunting. It really grabs you when you get into it, doesn't it? 
Oh, yes. The number one animal I hunt the most is turkeys. I spend most of my season turkey hunting. Every spring, I'm in the woods at least sometimes three weeks almost. I uh, I remember talking to, we had Bob Saley on years ago, and we were doing, we were promoting his book, Sultans of the Spring, which was on turkey hunting. And then I had one of the current presidents of the Wild Turkey Federation on that same show. And I said, what's your advice to people who uh, are first getting into turkey hunting? And he said, don't, it will consume your life. But, <laughs> but it is, you know, I think all of the calling sports, you know, because most of the spring turkey hunting is done from a blind and you're fooling and communicating with these birds. There's something about that type of hunting and that stealth mode and getting in their comfort zone and everything else you see in the wilderness when you're doing that that just grabs you, isn't it? Oh, yeah. There's nothing like, you know, having a big tom gobbling, you know, 50 yards or even five yards from you. It's, it's you know, you can't, the feeling is hard to describe. No. And, you know, you don't have to travel out of state to have good turkey hunting. In fact, I think one of the first things you wanted to talk to us about was the draw. I believe that's coming up for this year. Yes. The turkey draw ends on February 5th at 8 p.m. So they've got just a few days now. They do that online, I believe, right? Yes, you do all your applications online now. Um, you can do that at, at cpwshop.com is where you do all your, um, <clears throat> do everything for draw from big game to turkey. Um, so make sure you have a CID account and uh, set that up before you try to uh, apply. Now that's coming up quick. If I'm fairly new to turkey hunting or I've just hunted over the counter, is there some help for me to kind of know where to draw and what's involved? Sure. I mean, just to let you know, for my first two years at CPW, I was a hunt planner. And so, you know, we are there to help people kind of get, you know, started in hunting and understand different areas of hunting. Um, that's kind of what I want to talk to you today. I was definitely going to say, you know, turkey hunting is great in the state of Colorado. There's many things you can do from our limited tags, which offer great hunting, to our over-the-counter options. No, you're absolutely right. And and if they don't get a draw, there are great over the counter and we'll touch on that in a minute. But let's just say I've got I want a draw. I just you know, people get that feeling if I draw an area, maybe it's better. How do I find out? Is there time still for me to get some information, decide whether I want to go into the draw, and then help me do it? I mean, sure. I mean if you're looking at let's say you want to look at okay, I want to maybe hunt this area or even find a place to go hunting. You know, one thing you ever told your viewers of is there is what we call the Colorado Hunting Atlas, which has a list of game species they can check off, and they can see all the habitat and range of that animal, including turkeys. So they can find a hunting spot. They can find out, okay, is this a draw area or over-the-counter? You know, if it's a draw area, you know, they can look at what that hunt code is, and that's how those are organized by. Um, and they can see what the draw odds are. It could say maybe on average for like, say, maybe we're going in unit 96 on the river bottom of the South Platte. Um, that's split in two seasons. My first season there is usually on average five points to draw. My second season on average is two points to draw. So you look at that, it's like, okay, how long does it take me to maybe draw this really good turkey hunting area for the public land resources there? Um, what a lot of people don't know when I talk to them about turkey hunting is that they don't know that they can get two points per year for turkeys, one from the spring draw and one from the fall draw. So when they look at something that costs two points, that's just one year of putting in for points. And if it's four points, that's only two years of putting in. So you can get these really good turkey areas, you know, in a timely manner, a lot faster than big game areas. 
Now, if I don't really have a feel about where I might want to go hunting, I just maybe want to get away from the crowds, but I want a reasonable chance at at least having an opportunity to harvest birds. You know, a lot of that comes down to your own skill, too. But Mm -hmm. um, is there information that might guide me either online as far as the, you know, some of the better areas or can the hunt planners point me in some areas? Yeah, I mean, they can look at, you know, what I tell a lot of people is, you know, I look at, you know, the Colorado hunting, um, hunting hunting stats for, like, turkeys. And it will show you things like, you know, if I want to go over the counter for turkey hunting um, and I want to hunt exclusively public, um, you know, I would maybe look at areas like maybe Delta, Garfield, or Lake County have some of the highest uh, harvest rates for areas with a good amount of public land that holds turkeys. Now, we do have two breeds of turkeys here in Colorado. Is one a lot more prevalent? And they, do, they don't necessarily occupy the same terrain. Um, so, yeah, we have the native mountain Merriam's turkey, uh, which when you see them, they have that very white, uh, very white tips on their uh, tail feathers. Um, and then we, if you go out east to more of the river bottoms, you know, we have the, the Rio Grande turkeys that were introduced. Is one more prevalent? Do we see more harvest of one? Is one more available? Um, definitely, we, we see a lot more Merriams harvested because that's the that's the turkey that's majority on more public lands people have access to. While the Rios um, are much more of a draw turkey because you know the where you can hunt them on public land is mostly in state wildlife areas. But there also are you know private properties you can try to get access to and hunt them as well. Uh, but Merriams are definitely the number one harvested turkey in the state. Now. As far as uh, they were going to, I believe there's some walk-in access available for turkeys too. Is that correct? Um, yes. If uh, Well, I mean, not, so all our walk-in properties are for small game only. Okay. I don't know of any walk-in properties that are open for turkey hunting. And that's probably my mistake. So that's okay. I understand. Mm-hmm. You, you have some other programs for turkeys too. Um, some youth hunts. Do those have to be, do you have to draw to get participate? How does somebody participate in a youth hunt for turkey? In a youth hunt for turkey? Um, so that's a really good, you brought that up. So there are uh, youth exclusive tags uh, that people can put in for. Um, like they can put in for the uh, youth tag um, in the river bottom of the South Platte. Um, and that has really good draw odds for a first timer. Um, so that's a great way to get youth definitely involved in turkey hunting. You put in for the um, South Platte. Um, that's uh, you can draw maybe as a first choice. Um, there is an exclusive youth tag for the, the unit 103 that also has a youth tag for the Republican State Wildlife Area, um, and also along down the Arkansas, um, there is also a youth tag, and they're all very easy to draw on a first choice if you put in for one. That's so, uh, so there are youth exclusive only tags as well. Now. When will people know, uh, when will the results of the turkey draw? You said they've got till the 5th, I believe, to enter. Mm-hmm. When when will they see the results? Oh, uh, yeah, end of March, the results will be posted. And the season goes from April and May, I believe. I don't have uh, the dates in front of me, but... Yeah, I believe it's, I know it starts on April 13th and goes close to the end of May. Right. Now, right if before I, Memorial Day weekend. If I don't draw, there's still some pretty good over-the-counter hunting available, right? Oh, yes. And so a lot of people can take part in that. And so you can put in for the draw, build your points if you don't get a draw, and still hunt if you don't get a draw because we have great over-the-counter. Our turkey population is just burgeoned. So why don't you give a, the websites or tell people where they can get more information again before we let you go? Okay. 
Um, yeah, like I said, if you want to get more information on turkey hunting, you definitely want to go to our website, um, cpw.state.co.us. On our website, if you go under hunting, you can click turkey, um, and there's turkey hunting 101, where they give you definitely introductions on how to turkey hunt. Uh, if you also go on the hunting page, there is the Colorado Hunting Atlas, where you can click on the game species and select turkey habitat and see all the different areas that you can draw. When it comes to, you know, if I want to get to a more limited area with a higher success rate of, of turkey hunting, then I can look at my turkey hunting stats and see, you know, what it takes to draw certain areas. Um, if you want to get very technical and look at the terrain with the turkey habitat, if you also go to the maps library on the state website and go to the KMZ maps and click on turkey, that will overlay all the data the biologists have put together over Google Earth so you can get a good idea of what the train looks like and what the turkeys are using. All right. That's great. We are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us and all that information. And hopefully we'll see a, a growing number of people and just turkey hunting will continue to, to flourish here in Colorado. Thank you. Thank you, Terry. You bet. Uh, turkey hunting in Colorado. It's a, We're going to talk more about it. As we get closer, we'll give some tips. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. We're wrapping up the first hour, but we got a whole hour to go yet. Let me tell you the few things we're going to cover in the next hour. We will cover some ice fishing and we'll cover some open water fishing and some actual conditions to what's going on out there. And, you know, when we talk about the ice fishing, there's some great opportunities in the mountains right now. There are some ice fishing opportunities off and on in the front range, but you know what? Get in your car and drive 45 minutes. Go to Red Feathers. Go to North Michigan. Go up to Georgetown. Go to 11 Mile. There's good ice in a lot of those places, and we'll get some updates in the next hour. Lake John, if you want to drive a little further, is fishing great. Granby is fishing fantastic. So there are places to go. The ice on the front range, and there are people going out, and right now we're going to have three or four days of 45 to 60 degrees. Some of that ice is going to go away, and it's going to get really shaky. So we're going to have a few cold days after that where it may tend to firm up a little bit. But because that ice is thawing and refreezing, we have to be extremely careful. If you don't, even if you know or think you're an experienced ice fisherman, that freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing creates a lot of honeycombed ice, creates a lot of discolored ice, even if it is solid, can be very difficult. And I'll tell you what the biggest problem that happens. You're out in an area and one of the lakes that has a bay or a smaller lake that has an end that's fairly frozen. And you decide you want to venture just a little further and just a little further. It's kind of like stepping into that river with a current that once you take that one step too far, it's just, you know, it's you just you lose it. And we don't want anybody going through the ice. Now, most people who fall through, they're able to get out, especially if there's people around, you're prepared. You have to have ropes. You have to wear the right gear. But it's just, you know, we're getting to the point where if you don't want to drive, we're going to have some really good open water opportunities. In fact, next couple of weeks, I'm really going to cover them. Some of the biggest trout of the year are going to be caught 
in open water coming up in just the next few weeks on the Front Range of Colorado. And you remember, if you, by the way, if you were listening in the first hour, Troy Coburn was talking about his his flies and his jigs that he makes for fishing big trout in the mountains. You may want to go back and listen to that um, that segment. It'll be podcast up almost as soon as the show is done. And take a look at some of those because I'll tell you, there's some tailwaters like down at Pueblo. You go down to Pueblo Reservoir. It's one of my favorite winter fisheries, that tailwater. Now, they've done a lot of improvement down there. And so there's a lot of trout habitat and some with regulations. Close to the dam, there isn't as much regulation. But that river runs along a a bike path all the way through town. And there's great fly fishing. There's great conventional fishing. Some of it's flies and lures only. Some of it isn't. But there's this great fishing overall. But I think those flies that Troy is making, whether fished as a fly on a fly rod or a jig on a conventional rod, um, would be fantastic. Because not only would you have a shot at big trout down there, you would also have an opportunity to catch smallmouth bass, walleyes, uh, almost anything that swims, wipers in the reservoir. I've even caught huge catfish in that river uh, fishing with small jigs. So you can catch just about anything, including trout. I've fly fished it and I've conventional fished it. So I would listen to Troy's, and if you want to try something a little different, go down and fish those tailwaters below Pueblo. So, you know, by the way, Puxatani Phil, they said, saw his shadow out east today and scurried back into his hole, and we're going to have an early spring, but I... I got a feeling, I mean, he stayed out. He didn't get scared, so it's early spring. But I got a feeling that his cousins out here saw his shadow. So I don't know what this weather is going to do. It's been warm. It's been cold. It's kind of a shoulder season. It's the kind of time of year when uh, there's going to be opportunities one day, and they're going to go away the next, and there's going to be a different opportunity. We're going to see that for about the next two, three weeks. Now, there's going to be solid ice fishing opportunities in the mountains, But the front-range fishing is going to go between open water and, you know, I just hesitate to even say ice fishing because I'm not sure we're going to have fishable ice that I would venture out on. But just be incredibly careful if you do that. And we'll talk talk more about that later in the next couple segments. But this is a great time to start getting your gear ready. Coming up in the next hour, Dan Swanson is going to talk about getting your boat ready and then he's going to talk about outfitting it with electronics. Dan is one of the best. Ronnie Castiglione is going to talk about putting new line on your reels. Another thing I love to do this time of the year is to um, go through all my lures. Because during the course of a year, I start putting them in different boxes as I'm in a hurry. So I pull out all my lures. I keep them in those 3,700 clear boxes. Most of them, I mean, there's different things. but So I love to go through those and re-straighten them. It kind of reminds me of some of the different colors and sizes of lures I have too. And then I always have some new stuff I want to integrate in so I kind of get it organized. So I love doing that. But there's a lot of other tips getting your boat and your gear ready. And we're going to be covering them not only this week, but next week. We're going to take a quick time out and then we're going to be joined by Nate Zielinski right here on 104.3 The Fan.